0: Good afternoon. I assume most of you read your Bibles and so what I say today may may not be applicable for a lot of you. We went back and forth for this session whether to do some basic principles of biblical interpretation or to look at evidence for the truthfulness of the Bible, and we chose to do some really basic principles of biblical interpretation. So, this afternoon we are going to see how to understand, how to interpret the Bible, even in our casual readings. We cannot give what we haven't received. So when we read our Bibles, what we get out of our Bibles, it is only that that we can give out to people. So it is imperative that we receive from the Lord daily and an accurate understanding, and accurate interpretation of the Bible is critical for us to understand what the Bible says. So this afternoon, I'm going to talk about nine principles And these are really basic principles. There are so much more that I'm not going to say today. But we're going to look at nine principles of biblical interpretation. And then at the end of that, I'll give some tips on how to read the Bible. So the first principle is what is called as the literal interpretation. The literal interpretation. Now, the dictionary sense is... The natural or usual construction and implication of a writing or expression following the ordinary and apparent sense of words, not allegorical or metaphorical. So in normal English, how you would understand a set of words together in a sentence, how you would normally understand it. That is how we need to read our Bibles. It is the literal interpretation. It is a common, ordinary sense of the word, the meaning of the word. The literal and the proper sense of a word or a phrase must always be accepted as the intended meaning, the intended sense, unless there is an absolute indication or a necessity for understanding it in a figurative sense now there are certain instances when we prefer not to use the literal sense and you know sometimes as we as we read the bible there are certain instances we prefer not to use the literal sense and let me give you four times when we can unknowingly choose the figurative sense rather than the literal sense as we should be doing. One is when the figurative sense makes good sense. Sometimes when you're reading a piece of scripture, the figurative meaning seems to have a more spiritual meaning than the literal meaning of that sentence. In those instances, there is a temptation to take the figurative meaning and not the literal meaning. The second occasion is when the literal makes less sense. The literal makes less sense. So for example, let's turn to John chapter 1 and verse 14. John chapter 1 and verse 14. And it reads, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, when you read this verse, it is easier to think of it in a figurative sense than in the literal sense, which is what it actually means. The word, Jesus Christ, became flesh. And sometimes, as in this case, the literal is harder to grasp and therefore there is a temptation to use the figurative sense. The third instance when we can be tempted to use the figurative sense is when spiritual or Christian leaders have accidentally used something in a figurative sense. In those instances, we will try to follow them and use the figurative sense. A fourth instance is when a concept is figurative in one location, there is a tendency for us to use it in a figurative sense in another location. So, for example, in Acts chapter 2, it talks about how the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 people that were there in the upper room, and it says that there were tongues of fire. So, In that passage, the fire is figurative for the Holy Spirit. Now, knowing that there is a temptation, or there can be a temptation, when we can use fire to mean the Holy Spirit every time fire occurs in Scripture. And that is not correct interpretation. Same thing with oil. There is a tendency for preachers, and I've heard this multiple times before, to use oil to mean the Holy Spirit. And they use that figurative sense every time there is mention of oil in scripture. One example that comes to mind is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan used oil and wine to bandage up the victim's wounds and I've heard interpretations where the oil means the Holy Spirit and nowhere in that passage does it say that. What people have done is taken a figurative sense in one place and applied it in another place which is not the way to do biblical interpretation. Now let's look at when we can use the figurative sense. When can we use a figurative sense? Let me give three instances when we can use the figurative sense. One is when the literal sense is incompatible with the context or the purpose of the passage. When the literal sense. Is incompatible with the context or the purpose of the passage, in those instances we have to use the figurative sense. As an example, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13. 1st Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13 and this verse reads, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So in this instance, it's not talking about actual fire. It's talking about a figurative fire. If it were talking about actual fire, it would mean that all believers will go through hell before they get to heaven. And that's not true. That's not biblical. So in this case, you have to take the meaning as figurative fire, rather than literal fire. So in this case, fire means a means of testing, not physical fire. Let's look at another example. In Matthew chapter 8 verse 22, But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So obviously, the first dead is not talking about a literal dead. The second dead is talking about a literal dead person and that you understand from the context of the passage. But the first dead, when he says, let the dead bury their own dead, the first dead person or the first dead that he says, he's not talking about a literal dead person because it is an absurdity for a dead person to bury another dead person. The figurative dead person will bury the literal dead person in that sense. a second instance when we should use the figurative sense is when parallel passages explain the word or phrase in question and clearly show that the literal is not the intended sense and that the figurative is the intended sense. So if there's Two similar passages and in one passage there is clear evidence that it is the figurative sense that is implied then you can use it in the parallel passage in another place. And let's look at a couple verses as an example in Luke chapter 11 verse 20 it reads but if I drive out demons by the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come to you. Compare that with a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28. But if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So in the Luke passage, it says finger of God. In the Matthew passage, it says spirit of God. So obviously, when Luke writes it, he means the spirit of God. So you can easily transpose from one passage to the next passage because they are parallel passages and the figurative meaning in one is explained by the meaning in the other passage. A third instance when we should use the figurative sense is when the literal sense conflicts with doctrines, precepts or historical facts that are clearly set forth in other passages of the Bible. If there's an established doctrine in another passage of the Bible and you can find one verse where the literal meaning does not make sense, then yes, use the figurative sense. The second principle is what is called as the historical grammatical interpretation. This means to interpret in context and there are Three things that we need to know under this section. The first one is what is called as the historical context. We have to be aware of the historical background in which the text was written. Now there is a complete disjunction between the context in which the text was written in the first century Jewish culture and the context in which the text is being read in the 21st century in Western or even Eastern cultures. So because of this huge difference in cultures between the 1st and the 21st century, we have to understand the 1st century Jewish culture in which the text was written. Otherwise, we may not grasp the full depth of it. The Bible is not an abstract philosophical piece of literature. It was written within human history and therefore when we interpret the Bible we must seek to inform ourselves of the historical events, the culture, the geography, the archaeology and any other pertinent information surrounding the passage or the book that we are trying to study. I remember 20 years ago when I used to prepare a sermon, I used to go to the library, pick out a book on whatever the commentary was on and go through it to study and learn the historical context. These days there is so much information available online that sometimes there is too much information and too much unnecessary information that is not needed And we can waste a lot of time looking through a lot of historical background that is not really needed. So, in this day and age, we have to filter what is necessary and what is not necessary. So, the second kind of context under the historical grammatical interpretation is what is called as the literary context, the context of the passage itself. What comes before the passage you are studying? What comes after the passage you are studying? Several years ago in the church that I was in, in Kansas City, one of the small group leaders came to me to ask me if I had any suggestions for studying prophecy and end times and the book of Revelation. And I had done a study in the book of Revelation way back in 2000, 2001, we had gone through it in the church that we were in. It took us a year and a half. We went through Daniel and Revelation and the entire end times. And so my my advice to him was this, take a week and write out a complete outline of the entire book of Revelation before you start studying it and he looked at me like I had gone crazy. But I said, that's the way to do it. And so he comes to me a week later and said, man, you gave me such a headache by that assignment because it took a lot of work. And the reason why I asked him to do that is this. When you read a passage, for example, in that case from the book of Revelation, you will know exactly where in the large scheme of things it fits. You will know whether the first bowl comes after the trumpets or before the trumpets or before the scrolls or after the scrolls, after the third scroll or the fourth bowl, you see. So it's good to know the literary outline of a passage or surrounding a passage that we are trying to study. So, for example, if you're trying to study the parable of the servants in Matthew chapter 24, verse 45 to 51, the parable of the servants. If you just study the parable of the servants, Yes, it's going to make sense to you, but it's going to make more sense if you know the literary context. And this is the literary context. That whole section from chapter 24 and 25 is divided into three parts. The first part is the coming of Jesus in relation to the Jews, then there's a the coming of Jesus in relation to the church, then there's a the coming of Jesus in relation to the nations. Under the section, the coming of Jesus in relation to the church, the second section, there are three parables in that section. One is a parable of the servants, the parable of the virgins, and the parable of the talents. So now that you've understood the literary context, when you read the parable of the servants, you understand that it is under the subsection, the coming of Jesus in relation to the church, which is one of three sections in that passage. And so, it makes so much more sense when we know the literary context. Thirdly, word use, word use. Be sensitive to the grammar or word usage. So, for example, the word world. The word world does not mean the entire world in every single use of that word in the Bible. Another example is the word law in Paul's writings. The word law in Paul's writings does not always mean the Mosaic law. It can mean natural law. So we have to know what we are looking at the passage we are studying and the context in which that word is being used. Let me read a couple of verses and you will understand how to be sensitive to the grammar or word usage. Mark chapter 1 verse 5 And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, It says all the country of Judea is every single person in the country of Judea and every single person in Jerusalem going after Jesus? No. John chapter 12 verse 19 So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. So you see, it's not that the entire world has come after him. It's just a phrase, a a word use, and as we go through it, there are sometimes that we do word study, and in our word study, we have to understand how some words are used. This is obviously a common way of exaggeration that we use even today. The world has gone after him. The third principle. biblical interpretation is what is called as analogy of scripture. This means that we have to allow scripture to interpret scripture. Allow the clear and the plain passages of the Bible to explain those passages that are obscure or doubtful. Since the Bible does not contradict itself, we must look to other passages of the Bible that we can understand easily to illuminate those passages that are less clear. J.I. Packer, in his book God Has Spoken, wrote these words, The Bible appears like a symphony orchestra, with the Holy Spirit as its Toscanini. Each instrumentalist has been brought willingly, spontaneously, creatively, to play his notes just as the great conductor desired. Though none of them could ever hear the music as a whole, the point of each part only becomes fully clear when seen in relation to all the rest. So the Bible needs to be taken as a complete document. You cannot understand it by just focusing on certain parts of it. Some parts of the scripture illuminate other parts of the scripture. The fourth principle is what is called as the Christocentric emphasis of scripture. The New Testament writers primarily viewed the Old Testament as what is called as Christological documents. That means when they looked back at the Old Testament, they understood the Old Testament as looking forward to Jesus. So let me read a couple verses. In John chapter 1, verse 45, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. John chapter 5, verse 46, For if you believe Moses, Jesus is saying this, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Nowhere in the writings of Moses, in the first five books of the Bible, does it say the word or the name Jesus. Nowhere. The name Jesus is not mentioned in the Old Testament. And yet, the New Testament authors, on looking back, they realize that the Old Testament was primarily talking about Jesus. The natural tendency is to think that the Old Testament was Israel-centered or law-centered. But it is not true. The Old Testament is not Israel-centered and not law-centered. Instead, it was Christ-centered. Obviously, not every single word in the Old Testament is talking about Jesus, but The Old Testament is one story that is focused on Jesus. And that is why you can start preaching in any passage of the Bible. And it can lead you to Christ. Because any story, any passage of the Bible is Christocentric. And that is why when I preach in the radio, Every sermon leads to Christ and so I'm able to connect the passage of scripture to Christ and therefore easily to the cross. The fifth principle is what is called as the implicit versus explicit principle. And this principle is that the implicit should be interpreted in light of the explicit and not the other way around. Let me say it again. The implicit should be interpreted in light of the explicit and not the other way around. So you can't deduce an inference from one passage, and that is the implicit. You cannot deduce an inference and then use it as if it is established doctrine. So let me ask you a question and then we will see two verses that will explain this concept a little better. Does a natural man have the ability to choose Jesus Christ? Does natural man have the ability to choose Jesus Christ? You may say yes or no, but let's read two verses. John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you read this verse, you will come away thinking that natural man has the ability to choose Christ. But when you look at the verse, the main thrust of the verse is that God loved the world. So the implicit meaning from this verse or the inferred meaning from this verse is that human beings, the natural human being can choose God. Okay. Is there any other verse in scripture that has an explicit meaning to answer this question? And so in John chapter 6 verse 44 gives that answer. And this is what it says. John chapter 6 verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. You see in this verse it's clear as day that no one can come to God unless God draws him. So that is the explicit meaning in this verse. So the explicit meaning in this verse overrules the implicit meaning in the other verse. So yes, from the other verse you get the idea that whoever believes in Jesus Christ, therefore whoever chooses Jesus Christ, shall have eternal life. But the explicit meaning from this verse is that no one can come to God unless God the Father draws that person. So you see how the explicit meaning overrules the implicit meaning. So you cannot have a doctrine that's completely based on implicit interpretation in general. The one notable exception is the doctrine of the Trinity. There is no mention of the Trinity anywhere in scripture, but there are so many implicit references to the Trinity that you can make a doctrine out of it. The sixth principle is what is called as progressive revelation. This means that as the Bible developed, over a period of 1500 years that God revealed more and more truth as the years went by. Therefore, the New Testament is a more complete revelation than the Old Testament. This does not mean that there are no mature ideas in the Old Testament or that there are no simple elements in the New Testament. This is just a general pattern of revelation. So, for example, there are people that talk about the Ten Commandments in in Exodus chapter 20. Yes, the Ten Commandments were a great starting point, but that's not where we are now. If you read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, there are numerous times when Jesus referred to the Ten Commandments and said, You have heard that it was said, Do not kill. But I say to you, and he updates the law of God, and he updates the Ten Commandments, if you will. He doesn't do away with it. He updates it. He upgrades it. So we don't need to look at the Ten Commandments because that is in Exodus chapter 20, we can look at a more fuller revelation as revealed to us in the New Testament. The morality of the Ten Commandments was a necessary starting point of beginning in human beings' ethical, spiritual and theological development. They had to start somewhere. But the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 summons believers in God to a much higher level of ethical conduct. Let me give you four implications as a result of this particular principle. The fact that there has been progressive revelation through the 1500 years of biblical writing. First implication is that we expect the full revelation of God in the New Testament. We expect the full revelation of God in the New Testament. Now, I say this to caution us because there are erroneous theories out there that unfortunately expand on this principle to say that there is continuing progressive revelation. And that is absolutely not true. The completion of revelation was seen in the New Testament. And that is the end. There is no advanced revelation today. The second implication of progressive revelation is that we should not force New Testament meanings into the Old Testament, but by understanding the New Testament, you will be able to understand the Old Testament. So, for example, the Bible says that the Old Covenant was a shadow of things to come and the New Covenant is the reality. So, for example, if you look at my shadow in this light, let's say that you've never seen me. If you've never seen me and you look at the shadow, you don't know who this person is. I mean, you know it's a human being, but you don't know who this person is. But if you've seen me, the reality, and then you look at the shadow, then it makes sense. Oh, that's so-and-so who's standing right there. That's his shadow. So when people ask me, okay, which part of the Bible should I read first? And if it's a new believer, I direct them to the New Testament. Because the New Testament is a reality. Once you've understood and read the New Testament, The Old Testament makes much more sense. Otherwise, you will come away, if you just read the Old Testament, thinking that God is an angry God, wanting to destroy all his enemies, and the multitude of laws that makes no sense in today's world. You will come away with erroneous ideas about God and his law and life if you don't start with the New Testament and then go into the Old Testament. The third implication of progressive revelation is that we need to be aware of partial and elementary Old Testament revelation and adjust our view of the Old Testament accordingly. We cannot, with our existing knowledge of truth because of the New Testament, we cannot look at the Old Testament and either judge those people who are there, who are living with partial knowledge and we cannot judge events that happened because it happened with only a partial knowledge. So for example, medicine now is much more advanced. We have all kinds of scanning methods available to see inside the body. We know where the organs are inside the body. But 200 years ago, people didn't have that. The only way they could know was literally cutting open a dead body and looking to see where the organs were. So we cannot judge people 200 or 500 years ago for their lack of medical intelligence because they only had a partial knowledge and we have a more complete knowledge. In spite of the complete knowledge, we attempt to mess a lot of things up. So imagine then with their lack of complete knowledge. The fourth implication is that we need to avoid contradictions in scripture by forcing a New Testament standard of morality or doctrine upon an Old Testament passage. The New Testament standard of morality was not there in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, Abraham had three wives, for example, and the people that God used did all kinds of ridiculous things that if you judge them by New Testament standards and requirements, they seem completely off. But that is a revelation that they had and so we have to adjust the Old Testament Standard of Morality and the New Testament Standard of Morality based on the advanced revelation that we have. The seventh principle of biblical interpretation is what is called as historical narrative versus didactic. Historical narrative versus didactic. Now, historical narrative means A description of history or a description of an event. Didactic means a teaching portion of scripture. Bible readers usually make the mistake that just because the scripture records a particular action of a biblical character, they assume that that action has been endorsed by God. And that's not true. The Bible is a record of redemptive history and it records a variety of human deeds, both good and bad. And every description of a deed is not endorsed by God. Let's read an example. In Judges chapter 11, verse 30 following. This is a story. There is a judge called Jephthah. And so God told him to go fight some enemies and he wanted to make a vow to God and this was his vow. He said if you give me victory and I come back safely, the first living thing that comes out of my front door I will sacrifice. Who on earth makes such a vow? Well Jephthah did. So Jephthah made this vow and he came back victorious and the first living thing that comes out the door, I mean, what was he expecting? Did he expect a sheep to run out the door? Maybe he did. I don't know. But the first thing that walks out the front door to celebrate his victory was his one and only child, a daughter. And so he had to keep his vow. Now, when you read that story, you cannot come away with the meaning that God endorses that action. He made a ridiculous vow and he had to follow up with it. Just because something is described in scripture does not mean that God prescribes us to follow it. The historical narrative should always be interpreted by the didactic portions of scripture. This is a mistake that has been done in the Mormon doctrine. They said that because God created Adam and Eve in His image, that God has a body. Well, what they've done is taken a historical narrative and they made a doctrine out of it. No, you look at a historical narrative as historical narrative. You look at the the teaching portions of Scripture and explain the historical narrative. There are some clues for us to know what is a historical narrative or not. Let me give you four clues. One is there's usually a setting of a time or a place, if it's a historical narrative. The Bible is not abstract mythology. It happened in history. The people lived in history, unlike mythological gods. These people lived in history. So there's usually a setting of time or place when a historical narrative is described. A second clue is that it is conveyed in prose style. A third clue is the presence of genealogies. And so if you study the book of Genesis punctuated in each section of the book of Genesis are genealogies to show that these are all historical narratives. And fourthly there is no obvious moral point in that particular text. So in a historical narrative there is usually no moral point that the story is trying to say it's just a description of a story. You can Find a moral point if you are looking at another teaching or didactic portion of scripture that explains this historical narrative, then yes, you can find a moral point. That's a difference generally, not all the time, that's a difference between the gospels and the letters in the New Testament. The gospels are all historical narrative including Acts of the Apostles. The epistles or the letters in general are all didactic portions of scripture. Obviously there are historical narrative in the letters and there is didactic portions of scripture in the gospels especially when Jesus talks, it is all didactic portions of scripture. So you use the didactic portions of scripture to explain the historical narrative. Let me give you a personal example. I grew up with a lot of charismatic churches near our house back in India. And one of their doctrines is that everybody has to speak in tongues. And when I ask them, well, how do you say that everybody has to speak in tongues? And what they do is they point to the book of Acts and say, anytime the Holy Spirit came upon a person, they all spoke in tongues. Okay. The problem with that biblical interpretation, two problems. One is, they have assumed that when Luke wrote his account, that he mentioned every single account of the Holy Spirit coming upon people, and that is not true. Luke put together certain events that happened as he wrote to Theophilus, a high-ranking official. And the way you know this is, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about persecutions that he received. Most of them are not mentioned in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is not a complete list of all the events that happened in the early church. But the second problem with that argument is what they have done is they've taken a historical narrative and they've made a doctrine out of a historical narrative. You might as well make a doctrine out of Jephthah sacrificing his daughter because that's essentially what they are doing. If you want to make a doctrine, if you want to find a doctrine on the gift of tongues, it is easy. Come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14. There are plenty of verses that talk about the gift of tongues. And if you want to understand the gift of tongues in the book of Acts, which is a historical narrative, you look at the didactic portions of scripture in 1st corinthians chapter 12 and 14 understand the gifts in general and the gift of tongues in specific then come back to the book of acts and apply the didactic portions of scripture onto the historical narrative that is the right way of doing biblical interpretation The eighth principle is that exceptions are not the rule. Exceptions are not the rule. Incidental or rare events within scripture should not necessarily be taken as normative for Christians today. So, for example, in Acts chapter 1 in verse 26, they are trying to decide who would be the disciple who is going to replace Judas, who hung himself. And they throw lots. And that is the very last time that lots has been used in the New Testament or in the Bible. You cannot use that incident to say that we can use lots to find out God's will. You see, you're taking an exception And when you take an exception, you are missing out on the rules that are already there. You have made the exception, now the rule. The ninth principle is interpretation versus application. We have to interpret in context and apply in context. And there are two different contexts. We talked of multiple different contexts. We talked about the historical context, we talked about the grammatical or the literary context, we talked about word use and so on. But the two main contexts are the context in which the text was written and the context in which the text is read. We have to first interpret the scripture in the context in which the text was written before we apply the scripture in the context in which the text is read. We should not make an application of scripture in our context before we have interpreted the scripture in their context. Let me ask you a question. How many interpretations of scripture can there be from a verse? One. Correct. There can only be one interpretation of scripture from one verse. How many applications can there be from a verse? Infinite. There can be numerous applications from one verse. You see the difference? Interpretation is only one, application is numerous. Interpretation is in the context in which the text was written. Application is done in the context in which the text is read. And we have to draw that distinction. Sometimes there is a tendency to make the application as the interpretation. And that is a grave mistake. And that is a difference between a commentary and a devotional. People ask me, okay, which devotional should I read? I say, none of the devotionals. Why? Because the devotional is talking about what? Application. The devotional is talking about application. If you want to understand the Bible, don't read a devotional. Read a commentary. A commentary will help you to interpret the Bible and will help you to understand the context in which the Bible was written. And after you have understood it, then you can apply it in today's context. If you read only devotionals, the only thing you are reading are applications, application, application, application. You're not reading interpretation. So yes, when new believers ask me, okay, what should I read? Yes, you can start off with a devotional, but at some point you have to move on to a commentary so that you can get out of the Bible what God wants to speak to you and not just pre-chewed food that somebody else got out of the Bible. Now we're gonna look at some practical steps. The first one is to listen and wait. Listen and wait. You have to spend time. Take the Bible and shut off your phone for half an hour and just read the Bible. And just read the Bible. If you don't understand it, read it again. And just read it and spend time and spend time and spend time. It is easier for me to read the Bible than to pray. So when I'm trying to discipline myself, I have to force myself to stop reading the Bible so that I can pray. The opposite may be true for you. Maybe prayer is easy for you and Bible reading is less easy for you. So then you'll have to turn it around and force yourself to stop praying so that you can read the Bible. The second is to read and store. Let me read a verse, Psalm 119 verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So yes, we need to hide God's word in our heart or store up God's word. Let's read another verse, John chapter 14 verse 26. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, will teach you and remind you. Well, when it says remind, that means you already know something and you're now being reminded. If you haven't stored up scripture already in your storehouse, the Holy Spirit cannot remind you. We need to already have stored up stuff by Bible reading for the Holy Spirit to remind us. So I tell people, mix up your Bible reading. Yes, we ideally want to read everything in depth with exegesis and all the interpretation principles and all that. I mean, that's, that's true. But many times we come back after a day's hard work and we are not in a mood to sit and think and interpret. In those instances, just read the Bible. Just read the Bible. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have read the Bible 10 times? Very good. Very good. We have got to read the Bible. Mix it up. Mix up intense interpretive reading with casual easy reading. Read it like a novel. Any reading of scripture is storing in that little storehouse on top of your head so that the Holy Spirit can remind you when the time comes. Any reading. It can be in one sitting you can read 20 chapters. Another time in one sitting you will study only half a verse and that's okay. Mix it up and read. The third practical step that I want to give you is what we talked about before. See the big picture first. Rather than turning to one small passage of scripture, it is better to read a whole book at a time. Because when you read a book at a time, you understand the big picture in which all these passages are written. So as opposed to reading some random chapter in the book of Judges, Read it from start to finish, so you know the whole big picture. If you're studying only a particular passage, let's say that you're, that you're writing a sermon on only a particular passage, read multiple chapters before and multiple chapters after to see how the passage is laid out, and what is the outline of that passage. Before you start examining the trees, you need to find out if the forest is in North Carolina or Portugal, right? I mean, then you can get down to understanding the trees. The fourth principle is meditate and understand. Meditate and understand. And this is a discipline that we have to learn we have to discipline ourselves to dwell on a text of scripture. So you take a text of scripture or you take a verse and just dwell on it. Think about it. You know how when you eat a piece of chocolate, sometimes the chocolate is such that It rolls around in your mouth and your tongue keeps twirling it round and round and round. Do that with a verse of scripture or half a verse or a phrase and just let your mind twirl it round and round as you get the taste of that verse as it spreads around in your brain. And as you're meditating and thinking on this phrase or this verse, Ask questions. So when studying a text of scripture, learn to ask the right questions. And as you ask more and more, you will learn to ask the right questions. You can ask why, why not, what if, how, who, to whom. And as you ask these questions, more and more questions come up and then more and more answers come up. Let's read a verse. Matthew chapter 13, verse 19. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Now, the context, and you see how I'm trying to explain the context of the verse, otherwise the verse doesn't make much sense. The context of the verse is Jesus is explaining the parable, of the sower who sows seeds to his disciples. He has talked about the parable already and then the disciples came to him and asked him, okay, what is the meaning of this parable? And he is explaining this parable. So in this parable, there are four types of soil and the sower, as he threw the seeds, it fell on four types of soil. One type is the seeds that fell along the path or the wayside and this is the explanation that Jesus is giving about that type of soil. Matthew chapter 13 verse 19 When anyone hears a message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Did you catch what Jesus said there? Let me read it again. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. You see that? If you don't understand the scripture, the evil one can take it away. So, when you read scripture, understand it. When you read scripture, understand the message. Obviously, in this case, it's talking about the message of the kingdom. But that's true anytime. You can read the Bible and if you never understand the Bible, if you never understand what you're reading, the net result is zero. I mean, you've come away without getting anything out of it. That's why there are people that sit in our churches who've come for years and years and then they've heard sermon after sermon after sermon, but somehow they are not growing spiritually. And the reason is they are not understanding the sermon. They are not understanding the Bible. The fifth practical step is preach as much as possible. The Bible says to preach in season and out of season. And we've heard that phrase before, to preach in season and out of season. But it is very interesting to see the verse after that. Let me read that verse and the verse after that as to why Paul says to preach in season and and out of season. So basically, preach whenever you can. Let's read 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 following. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now the key verse. Verse 3, for a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths why do we have to preach in season and out of season because a time will come well when people will not want to listen to sound preaching and sound doctrine And before that time comes, let's preach as much as we can. Another verse that I love is in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Sow words. So, biblical truth, preach whenever you can, wherever you can, to whomever you can, because you don't know whether this or that will succeed. Maybe the first 10 times you talked biblical truth to your friend may not succeed. Maybe it's the 11th and 12th time that is going to succeed. So use every opportunity you have to preach God's word. Let me give you a story from when I was 20 years old, 19 or 20 years old. I was in third year of professional school back in India and those days I was leading three Bible studies a week, one in my school and one in one pharmacy school and one in another pharmacy school. So the way I would lead a Bible study is I would take my guitar, I would print out some songs, and I would take the Gospel of John, which were these small booklets, and we would go, a few people would come, we would sit and sing some songs, and then we would take the Gospel of John, and starting with Chapter 1, we would go as much as we could. I remember going to this pharmacy school called the KLE School of Pharmacy. I had one contact there. We thought to start a Bible study. I think it was on Tuesday evenings. I went there with my guitar. We sang some songs, and we looked at the Gospel of John chapter one, and we just went through the whole chapter. I wasn't gonna go verse by verse. It was just We just looked at the whole chapter and we looked at some concepts from each chapter. That first week, there was this 17-year-old kid. It was a Hindu kid. He had never been to Christian meetings before. A Hindu kid and he sat for this meeting, the very first meeting. I went through John chapter 1 and he went away. I came back the next week We did John chapter 2 and that kid was not there. His name was Abhishek. The kid was not there and I never saw him since. And I remember thinking in that second week, oh, I wish that Abhishek came for the second week because the first week was so heavy because of John chapter 1 had heavy stuff in it about the Word becoming flesh and the incarnation of Christ and these, uh, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, you know, heavy stuff in the first week. I thought, oh, the second week had how Jesus turned water into wine and uh, he would have been more interested in that. I remember thinking that in my shallow mind and I never saw that, that kid again. Several months later, I get a call on a Sunday morning and the person who called me was a person that was at one of those meetings and he said, guess who's getting baptized today? He said, Abhishek is getting baptized and his dad is a Hindu fanatic in one of the extreme fanatical groups of Hinduism and his dad was coming to stop the baptism, but he got baptized before his dad could stop it. And here I was thinking, oh, I wish he came for the time when Jesus turned water into wine. You see, the Word of God has so much inherent power. It has the power to change people. Those of us who have had Bibles in our houses from the beginning will not understand the thirst that people have for God's word when they've not had it. Take a look at this video of Chinese people that have not had access to the Bible and now they are getting Bibles for the very first time. The whole video is in Chinese, but you will get the import of its message when you look at it. It has sold more than 2.4 billion copies since 1816. It has been on the bestsellers list for the last 400 years and has been translated in over 1500 languages. It has had a greater impact on culture, worldviews and individual lives than any other book. It has been responsible for wars, revolutions, and reformations. It spans over 1,500 years, written in three different languages by 44 authors, making up a total of 66 books. Once laughed at, it is now used by archaeologists to find lost civilizations. Its historical accuracy is impeccable. Its predictions of future events have been fulfilled by the hundreds with shocking precision. It is a foundation for law and morality for many nations. It unveils the origins of man and his final destiny. It explores and reveals the deepest philosophical questions of humanity. It is practical yet deeply spiritual, simple yet filled with eternal mysteries. Its words are able to cut into the very heart of man, often resulting in overwhelming displays of emotion, conviction, Freedom, courage, and self-respect. It is authoritative not only on earth, but in the heavens. Principalities and powers must bow before its command. It is a window to heaven, a biography written in God's own handwriting, a love letter, a manual for life. When heaven and earth come crashing down and the stars fall from the sky, it will be left standing solid, for it is the eternal Living Logos. Thank you.